0: On Sunday, 10th November, CICD celebrated its sixtieth anniversary. In today's programme, you will hear the CICD executive chairperson, John Spate, introducing the speakers.
1: The next speaker is John Lloyd, who was he was the secretary when Sam was the uh, chairperson. John Lloyd. Thank you, John. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. In nineteen fifty-nine, I was in fact a fresh-faced, very naive first year theological student and a controversy arose during that year because the principal of the theological college whose name was Lyle Williams uh, signed a very controversial sponsorship statement sponsoring the ANZ Congress for International Cooperation and Disarmament that was to be held in November and um, this created quite a lot of consternation in the church that I belong to because uh, uh, it was a very... Uh, Dumious thing for someone, a religious leader, to be doing. As a consequence of uh, some clergyman's involvement in the ANZ Congress and as a, a result of the fact that the Congress was having difficulty being given public halls to conduct their events in because councils one by one were closing down because of the controversy uh, about the Congress and so they were closing uh, the doors on the renting public halls. And so the group of clergymen said, well, how about if we go and we ask to uh, rent the halls, will they knock us back? And, of course, they did not knock the clergymen back. clergymen rented the halls, gave them to the Congress, and away they went. Uh, that group of clergymen became known as the Peace Quest Forum. And the name Forum, of course, related to the fact that they were providing access to a forum for the Congress. And um, later on, probably six or seven years later, I emerged out of my very conservative background and I joined the Peace Quest Forum. And that is how I got to know the Reverend Elf Dickey and Frank Hartley. And they told me that uh, CICD was looking for someone to become secretary when they knew that I was leaving the church. So they, um, they suggested I go and meet Sam Goldblum and hey presto, I got the job. But I remained very naive and when uh, in my first uh, period at the CICD in the little beehive building in Elizabeth Street where you risk your life going in the lift up to the seventh floor, in, in that building uh, there were some wonderful people who took care of me and Margaret Fraser, Mary Soulsby, a number of other women and um, a number of men as well were very good to me. Also, Bruce was there uh, later on and uh, Pauline and a vast number of volunteers who Margaret Fraser could bring them up and in a flash they would be in there in pre-email days sending out mass mailings. They were a great team and vital to the success of uh, the organisation. The office bearers when I started there were Alf Dickey, I think, was chairman, Frank Hartley, Sam Goldblum, Dorothy Gibson, Joe Kears, Leslie Ebbles. Norman Rothfield, and a number of others. What was also vital to the organisation was the network of uh, suburban peace groups. What a treasure they were, and um, people were available to take things out from the centre and make them very local. And it was a great political activist structure. So what were the campaigns? Well, I'm just picking three campaigns to talk about today, or, or three facets of our organisation. There was the nuclear disarmament issue... We did keep up the tradition of that Hiroshima Day activity for many, many years. It had started well before I was there. And in 1972, you'll remember that there were... French were testing in the Pacific, nuclear testing, and um, we got together a group to go to Tahiti to stamp our foot and to knock on their doors and to demand uh, an uh, an end to nuclear testing in the Pacific. So the group uh, consisted of uh, Jim Cairns who by then I think was president of the CICD. This was the first sort of really activist thing that Helen cot did. We rang her and asked her to join. And there was the AUS and some other groups as well who were going to go to the Tahiti. And we went to Sydney Airport and Gough Whitlam was there to see us off. And uh, just as we were about to get on the plane, a Qantas official came along with a telegram saying, the French have refused permission for the following people to disembark at Tahiti Dr Cairns, Helen Caldercot, John Lloyd and so some of them actually still were able to go because they, they were not named on the list and the others uh, went to Paris to knock on doors there I was afraid of the expense and I stayed home um, but that was a, a, a very interesting event and it gave another opportunity to put before the Australian public who were not sympathetic to French nuclear testing in the Pacific by any means Another feature of our uh, activity in those days was to bring in speakers from overseas. For some reason, they got much better attention from the media than homegrown locals ha- having the same message. So uh, we would invite speakers from overseas, they 'd step off the plane, there 'd be this gang of the press in front of them, and'd sh- the overseas guests would be amazed. <laughs> Who am I i 'm just an academic from a back university. No, but in, in Australia, they were stars, and they had some great important messages to bring. I remember particularly enjoying the visits of Schiller and Whitaker, uh, academics. Tam Del De Yell, who was a, a British parliamentarian, who was on to the fact that he believed that chemical and biological warfare was testing was happening in Australia. They were testing weapons up in the jungle. And uh, he came out here, we sponsored him on, on a national tour, and uh, he brought, drew attention to that. Michael Barrett-Brown, who became the kind of father of the fair trade movement was one of the overseas speakers, and a, the most famous of them all was Dr Benjamin Spock. One person who did not come was Dick Gregory, the American h- comedian. The Australian government refused to give him a, a visa at the height of the Vietnam War, and Dick made this classic statement when he said, what's the Australian government afraid of? I'm harmless. I'm just a vegetarian pacifist. <laughs> uh, of course, the highlight of uh, the, the The period when I was uh, secretary uh, was the uh, Vietnam moratorium. We had been involved in the July 4 demonstrations for years. We'd worked with the Committee in Defiance of the National Service Act. And then immediately, I think the day after the uh, massive American moratorium rally, uh, particularly in Washington, which had hundreds of thousands of people in the the sacred... Halls of uh, Washington. Uh, The day after that, I think we had a CICD meeting in Elizabeth Street, and a couple of us got together and said, "Do you think we can?" After the meeting, we said, "Do you think we can do that here? A great mass of people from the cross section of the society will make it non-violent. We'll make it. We'll use the same word, the moratorium. We'll we'll build on it and try and get a massive demonstration on the streets." And so away we went. I think to Canberra and got all ALP caucus members except the leader and deputy leader to sign the statement of support for the Vietnam moratorium with the non-violent clauses in it. And then we set up the process which led to the Richmond Town Hall meetings. And we were so fortunate to have the leadership of Jim Cairns because he brought together not only the intellectual strength, he wielded a sense of democracy through the whole Operation And those meetings at the Richmond Town Hall, they might have seemed like chaos, but everybody had their chance. And it was a, a, an amazing experience for all of us who were involved. So we were fortunate to have his leadership. So when, of course, the uh, moratorium did actually finally take place, and we had anticipated that we might have 20... 30,000 people, wouldn't that be great? And finally on the day, it just swept us all away and it was, for the Australian public at large, it was, woo! this is big, What, what is going on? There has been a change in the tide of public opinion. So it was a big and important event and, of course, it wasn't so long after that that there was a change of government, the withdrawals of troops were underway and uh, I think... The moratorium played a very important part in Australian history in that day, and and the legacy lasts till today. And I think CICD was absolutely central. It may have happened if CICD hadn't taken the initiative, but we were there, we took the initiative, and um, it, it was just a great event that CICD can be proud of. CICD has much to be proud of about its whole history, and it has the right, I think, to shout its success and its events from the treetops because the Australian public needs to know that there are people who have had a long-term commitment to peace and disarmament and and are still working faithfully to try and achieve it, no matter what the odds. So I wish you well in your future. I commend the, the CICD for its ongoing activism and say congratulations and best wishes. The next speaker is Marion Harper. Uh, Marion Harper is uh, Ex-Honorary Secretary of the Unitech, the church at Rindadine. Marion Harper.
0: Um, I'd like to warmly commend the CICD for a memorable birthday. Um, I wasn't involved very much with the CICD. My work in the peace movement was more with the Victorian Peace Council, and so I was pleased that John Lloyd mentioned Frank... uh, Victor and Alf, who were the three very brave ministers who stood up to their own congregations in order to work for the peace movement and and a tribute to them also. Of the past 3,400 years of human history, humans have been entirely at peace only for 268 years. That is just 8% of recorded history. When I was a child, we used to think that we lived in a peaceful world and every so often there was a war. But in fact, the opposite is true. We live in a world of war that's interspersed with periods of peace. At least 108 million people were killed in the wars in the 20th century alone. 108 million people. The First World War, which the ruling classes of the UK, the US and Australia so eulogised, was clearly a a war for markets and had nothing to do with the defence of the people of those nations involved. A market war which cost millions of working people their lives unnecessarily and for profit. Death manufacturers, like Lockheed Martin, remain as the world's largest arm producer in 2017, with arm sales of $44.9 billion. Imagine what the world could do with $44.9 billion of peaceful development. It is abundantly clear, however, that we will never have peace under the capitalist system because capitalism is based on greed and competition for markets and it is from this very premise that wars arise. So our role, it seems to me, in the peace movement is to expose capital and its naked greed if we want to achieve world peace. There is no other way. We know from the sterling work carried out by the CICD and the Victorian Peace Council during the difficult days of the Cold War and the wars following that peace is elusive and has simply become a period between wars of imperialist aggression. That there are two kinds of wars is unarguable. There are just and unjust wars, and we need to be very clear in the peace movement what the stand of the peace movement is on that premise. Wars of national liberation, the struggle by the people for freedom, from colonialism, imperialism and capitalist terrorism, and from economic tyranny, are wars that need to be supported around the world. Where people rise up in opposition to poverty and exploitation, and for freedom from imperialist domination, then they must be supported. However, we need to be very careful in examining even those struggles to ensure that they're not initiated by the very enemy we're all opposing. Imperialism will utilise any struggle for democracy and turn it into a struggle for another form of oppression. Socialism is the only answer, in my opinion, to the world's problems, but it needs to be genuine socialism and not some bourgeois concept of socialism. To claim that one stands for peace is a warm, fuzzy-sounding claim, but that peace needs to mean something. For example, a period of peace free from war may not necessarily be freedom from oppression. Indeed, that oppression can increase in times between wars. So those who genuinely support peace need to examine the causes of war. Who are the warmongers? What is their role? And we need to be courageous in calling out those who claim to support peace, but who support their own nation in times of war in the name of patriotism. We need to be alert and we need to be objective. So congratulations to all those who keep up the fight for the peace and to expose the nature of capitalism and imperialism because we're on the winning side. Thank you.